Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Ralph Moore and Myron Pierce on Practical Multiplication. Practical Multiplication highlights Exponential's core church multiplication frameworks with a focus on the everyday practical nature of how these concepts can help pastors and church planners make disciples and multiply churches. Now, let's join Ralph Moore and Myron Pierce. Hey, welcome to the Pastor's Guide to Accelerated Church Multiplication with an old white dude and a hip young urban guy. Uh, real privilege for me this time of my life to be with the people that I'm with today. Uh, my buddy Myron, who's just keeping me on my toes and learning stuff, and my friend Todd Wilson, who leads Exponential. And uh, Todd is a bigger figure in my life than he even perhaps realizes. Um, our relationship kind of started out a little bit rocky. I, I, I signed up to write a book for Todd, and then he probably forgot about this. And then I backed out at the last minute, and he got mad at me, and then I just decided to forget this. And then later on, we met, and it's like, oh, my gosh, bromance, you know? The guy eats at McDonald's. Um, he, he gets it in terms of ebooks. He likes to do things on the cheap. He gets a lot done with a little um, and he, you know, right now I, I, I'm in contact with the three smartest people I have met in my entire life. Uh, one guy uh, is a guy who brought back the Apollo 13 astronauts from the moon. Um, another is my friend Myron, who just aces me every time we talk. But Todd Wilson is, is just a little over half my age, and I feel like I'm around my dad when I'm with him. Uh, because he's so smart and he's just so far ahead of me in everything I do. And I, I want to take a moment and, and just tell you all, I'm, I'm going to be 75 in a month, 75 years old, that is. And um, when I started approaching, you know, age 65, 66, I planted a new church and that was going well. But then the long-term plan was at age 70, I'm just going to be sitting out and watching TV in Hawaii, supporting what's going on and probably being bored. And I met Todd Wilson, and he brought me into the team. And uh, gosh, it's been a savior for me. I, I just don't know. You know, I might be still soaking in depression if it hadn't been for my friendship with this man. And so uh, I just want to introduce you to Todd Wilson. Uh, Todd, as, as we get started today, uh, we really want to talk about the math of multiplication. You know, we've lived in this era of growing big churches while Christianity in America shrinks. Uh, you've come along, and probably more than any other person, maybe the Elijah of this generation, you've forced us to rethink these things. Just talk to get us going about the math of multiplication. I appreciate that, Ralph, and your kind words. Uh, and just to, to clarify the significance of math, um, 
you're 75. You said I'm I'm less than half your age. So uh, <laughs> I, I wish that were true. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the math of multiplication, Ralph, what uh, there's a couple of things that immediately come to mind for me. So let me kind of come at it, uh, answer the thing two different ways. Um, you know, biblically, who doesn't want to be fruitful and multiply? I mean, the command to be fruitful and multiply. And when, when you know, so often we want to grab onto formulas, though. And like, so if, if, if you want biblical multiplication and you want to be fruitful and multiply, we so much would love to be able to open up the Bible and see a formula. So give us the formula for it. And in, in, in this huge book called the Bible, we can't directly extract the formulas. And even if we tried to, all we would, I mean, think of the division in the country right now over masks, okay? Like, what division would we have over trying to come up with the formula for multiplication? Um, but what we can do is we can look at the principles, we can look at the elements, we can look at the things that if we were going to try to do more of the formula part of it, or the principles or the foundational elements of how do you be successful at it, um, we could come up with things we would agree with. So, for example, anywhere we see multiplication movements and the math of that, the rapid multiplication, the characteristics of it, we, we unpeel, we peel it back, and what we see is disciple-making actually at the core. And so most people aren't going to argue when we get to the pillar elements of things that, that a Jesus style of biblical disciple-making, of disciples making disciples, is the engine behind the multiplication part of things. And it, and it really doesn't matter what your wiring is or what your theological background is. We can rally around those kinds of things. So there's an element of when we refer to the math of multiplication that we're not actually talking about the geeky formula part of it. We're talking about the what are the elements that we've got to be focused on for healthy multiplication to, um, to come together. Now, that's kind of the, I'll say, the, the, the more touchy-feely part of it kind of thing, if you will, not the formula. On the other end of the spectrum, let me ask you this. How many church leaders have you met that are wired to wake up thinking about math formulas every day? Like, you know, it, it just doesn't work that way. And, and, and yet, here's the thing. If the Bible doesn't give us formulas for math, what we can understand is that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, organized life into systems and processes, and it isn't just chaos. There actually is. And so this thing called mathematics, who is the designer of mathematics? It wasn't some human living being that came up with mathematics. God designed mathematics into the creation of the world. And so the idea that one plus one is two, and two times two is four, and two to the third power is eight, we really can look at these mathematical things that are of God, subtraction, plateauing, adding, reproducing, multiplying. And we can say, if God is the author of those things, how do they apply relative to 
both disciples making disciples who reproduce, churches and how they add and grow and reproduce, we absolutely ought to be able to take the math of things and say, now, how does this, math is of God. How do we apply it in the setting? And I, I think what, what the, here's the challenge that, that I run into in this is I, I'm increasingly talking about kind of the macro narrative and the micro narrative in things. If, if, if just take the racial reconciliation and tensions in the country right now, part of why we have division and part of why we don't enter conversations at the same place is some people enter the conversation at the macro narrative. The, the Breonna Taylor uh, outcome was unjust. That's a macro narrative that does God want people in their bed without a gun dying, you know, by somebody coming? No, it's unjust. That's a macro narrative. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got people that enter the equation from the micro narrative. The micro narrative meaning, man, let's jump in and understand the facts and the details. That's where like the formula, the math, the facts part of it. And what I would say is the challenge on this math of multiplication, this idea of a macro narrative and a micro, most pastors are wired for the macro narrative on multiplication. The macro meaning who doesn't want up and to the right and God added to their numbers daily and the movemental part of things. We can get inspired by the macro conversation but we still have to bring it back to the micro narrative conversation, which is, okay, what are the things and the behaviors that produce those, that macro fruit that we're talking about? And so that's, that's where, to me, this idea, of, even though it's not a sexy term, the math of multiplication, at some point, we've got to lift up the hood and look at the engine under the hood and understand what are the things that are actually producing the multiplication as it, it comes out in the characteristics. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. You know, when I think about this, I, I think of always three numbers. To, uh, the, whole, the whole chapel thing, we always talked about the three most important numbers in Scripture are 3, 12, and 120. That uh, Jesus had three that were very close. He had 12, and one of them failed. And he left behind, you could say he planted a church in Jerusalem, of 120 people. I've always challenged a guy with 80 people who's struggling. Can you pray lifetime goal for 120? But I always look at the guy with 125 people and go, hey, to whom much was given, much is required. Uh, you know, get with it. And so I, I think we can pick and, and, and find these little things in Scripture, but it's exactly what you said. We've got to get down to it at the micro level. Uh, you know, who who are my three? Who are my seven who are my 12 those kinds of things myron what you thinking i know you're thinking and and you got some ideas pop in here yeah man i i um i'm just kind of in awe that i get to be in the same room with these guys um talking about the math of things could you use uh todd the idea of the math of multiplication as it pertains to the elevation and the advancement of how exponential is now being used in the life of church planners. <clears throat> help, help us see that formula through what you've been able to build, build 
since the conception of exponential, I think we'll draw several principles from that uh, as, as pastors and leaders. Yeah. Let me, if, if, I, if I could, let, let me give kind of one building block to that to answer the question first, if it's all right, Myron. Yeah. Um, I think what's important, even when we use definition, so let's, let's kind of limit this conversation right now to addition, reproduction, and multiplication. Exponential is all about reproduction and multiplication. And your question is, what's exponential kind of internally practically doing to see reproduction and multiplication? But I think where we've got to start is making sure we kind of are on common footing of what addition means, what reproduction means, and what multiplication means. Because many people can hear those words and have different ideas of what they, of what they mean. Um, if, 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 if we started with subtract, I like to usually start with if we were drawing a picture on the wall right now, and all I did was put a graph up of a number up one scale and time out the other, and the graph is going down. It's got a downward slope out into time in the future. It doesn't matter whether you're a mathematician or a pastor. Pastors know how to read graphs like that. And you don't want your attendance going down. You don't want your financial giving going down. You don't want your baptisms going down. You know, down and to the right, that's the subtraction kind of culture. Um, if we go to the other end of the spectrum, the addition kind of thing, and we do a graph that's up and to the right. Like, seriously, somebody's lying if they tell you they don't want an up and to the right curve. Like, of course you want up and to the right. And if we just start, and this applies in business, this applies in church, it, it's across the spectrum. If we take subtraction and addition, in between the two is plateau. So if we were to draw the life cycle of a person, a bell curve, you start out a baby, there's growth, there's midlife plateau, and then there's decline, that bell curve, the three phases of a bell curve represent addition, plateau, and subtraction. Ecclesiastes, everything has a season under the sun. Go compare this versus this, this versus this, a time for this, a time for this. All that, that, that's happening there is the comparison between seasons of subtraction, seasons of addition. So if we start with that truth, 100% of churches, 100% of churches since the beginning of churches, including up until today, they go through seasons of subtraction, addition or growth, and plateau. The only question is at what point the season of decline will not turn around back to a plateau or an increase again, and you will eventually die. Now, don't let that be sad, but everything has a season. The human body has a season. Businesses have a season. Churches have a season. So the first principle we've got to latch on to is 100% of churches are subtracting, plateauing, or adding. That's truth number one. Truth number two on mathematics, again, the idea of reproduction and then multiplication. So if we start with reproduction, let's just use the analogy to humans. Um, not all humans will either by choice or they may want to and can't. Not all humans end up having kids. Not all humans reproduce, either because they choose not to or they can't. And so 
where every human has addition, subtraction, or plateau in their seasons, not all humans have reproduction or multiplication. The same thing is true of churches, where every church subtracts, plateaus, or adds, not all churches actually ever reproduce or multiply. And so now let's just quickly press into the dip. What is reproduction in the church sense or in physically? And then what's multiplication? So here's what I want to do is I, I've got a pen. And most, again, this is pastor math now, okay? I've got one pen, right hand, and I'm bringing another pen in in my left hand. What have I just done? Reproduced. <laughs> Sorry, Myron. I have not reproduced. Oh, you've added. You added. You've added. I have added. You've added. You've added. And, and the reason I've added is the first pen had nothing to do with the second pen coming into being. The external action of me, Todd Wilson, putting one in and then me having to take an action to put a second in. I am adding. Now, if somehow this pen were here, and now magically this pen splits from one pen to two, the way a human egg and embryo, you know, a human fertilized egg goes from one, you know, two cells to four cells to eight cells to 16, at that point in time, the reproduction of those cells has nothing to do with the mother of whom whom's womb that thing is in. It, it is now on its own reproducing, separate from a parent having to do something kind of thing. So the first characteristic that, you know, where addition distinguishes itself from reproduction is not all addition. One pen plus one pen is two. That's addition. But not all addition is reproduction. Reproduction is when one has the ability or capacity to reproduce itself into two. And secondly, it actually does it. It isn't just that it has the ability to, it not only has the ability, but it actually does it. Does that make sense? Now, here's the really cool thing. And this is when the New Testament talks about they cooperated, cooperated, and God added to their numbers daily. That addition over time is reproduce it is actually reproduction went over and over. But here's the cool thing. Not all addition, when one and another one becomes two, that's not reproduction. But look at this. Every single time you reproduce, if this pen by itself can become two, you have guaranteed addition. You've did there is no way to reproduce without adding you have to add if you reproduce and that that is maybe the most important truth that i think most pastors and churches are missing is and here here's what i mean by that if we really let disciple making jesus way of disciple making a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple is that addition or reproduction well, I'm going to let Ralph answer that one since I got the last one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a, a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple is reproduction. It, I don't think we've hit multiplication and, yet. And, and look what happens when, that ha when a disciple makes a disciple makes a disciple, and each of those disciples makes disciples. 
we are reproducing and it guarantees addition. Yep. Now look what, ha- so, so that now, now real quick before we move on to multiplication, look what happens. Let's just talk the model of the U S church, the standard model of addition in the U S church. What is the model of addition? Is it disciples who make disciples? I would say it happens, but it's not the normative method of addition in the U.S. church. The normative method is programmatic. We need the best worship services. We need the best marketing campaigns. We need the best outreach things. And look what happens when programs become your method of addition, the catalyst for addition. Are programs additive or reproducing? And the answer is, there's no program in the history of the world that has ever reproduced itself. Programs consume resources, they don't reproduce resources. And so the the kind of insanity that we've put in place in the normative method of the U.S. church is, we are relying on a programmatic approach to addition those programs don't naturally reproduce themselves the way a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple do. And as a result, how often do you hear pastors get frustrated with, I'm just so tired of people who don't feed themselves. We got to keep feeding people. We got to keep feeding people spiritually. That's a characteristic of a programmatic approach to addition is that we're getting exactly what we're designing for. So and once in a while we get something beyond that. You know, I've I've watched this in, in in not so much in our churches, although I think we're guilty of this, is that you do the programmatic thing and you get this one person who comes along and something happens between them and the spirit of God, and suddenly they got like thirteen followers and they're they're absorbing from the program, but then they're deviating from the program. They're just out there with their little group. And, and we want to cut that off because that's a threat to what we're doing. And, and, and the possibility of multiplication just evaporated mm. or becomes a cult. So the, let's just real quick then, the difference in reproduction and multiplication. The, this is another one that we've got to wrap our head around. So often, those of us that are more apostolic and pioneering, we want to jump right to the, how do we get multiplication? We want to go right to the multiplication. But here's the principle. Multiplication is not something you do. Multiplication is the product and the overflow of doing reproduction three to four generations in the future. And so look at how cool this ends up being. If you focus on healthy reproduction, you get addition. And if you focus on healthy reproduction to the third or fourth generation in the future, you get multiplication. The focus needs to be on healthy reproduction because it gives us both addition and multiplication. Here's what I mean. If, if we had a big whiteboard, we'd draw a picture right now. Just like I said, the curve that goes down, the curve that goes up is addition. Now picture right now one church and that one church reproduces into two. It plants a church, and now there's two. Now imagine those two churches reproduce, and there's four. And the four reproduce, and there's eight. 
and the eight reproduce and there's 16. If we could now ju just do that from left to right on a graph, one, two, four, eight, 16, 32, and now draw a line on that growth curve, what you get is an exponential up curve. You don't get a linear addition line, you get an exponential up. That's called multiplication. When you reproduce three or more generations in the future consistently, that the children reproduce, the children of the children reproduce, the children of the children of the children reproduce, you get multiplication. It's an outcome. And, and now here's the other, I know I'm saying a lot here, but here's the other cool thing. Think parenting and grandparenting. You're a grandparent, right, Ralph? Yep. Here's, the, here's a sobering thought. By the time you have great, great, great grandkids, you may not be around. And here's the sobering thought. You have very little control over your great, great, great grandkids to the point that there's a very good chance they're not going to know your name. And that's a really sobering thought. Like, now think about it. If multiplication relies on your great, great, great grandkids behaving a way you're trying to implant DNA into your kids, and yet you have no direct connection to them in three generations to the point that they don't even know your name. Look how important healthy reproduction between you and your kids and the DNA that you impart into your kids is because the only way you're going to get multiplication is if that DNA you impart into your kids, they value it to pass it on to their kids who value it to pass it on to their kids. And you don't have any control other than what you pass on to your kids. We have a we have a question from the audience. Um, they're asking, "Hey, uh, hey, Todd, what's a non-programmatic ministry approach that that does both, you know, reproduction and multiplication?" Yeah, this is where I would I would point right back to you and Ralph and the stuff you guys are working on. So if if we, I mean, all you have to do is describe your ministry, Myron. How, how many guys do you meet with a week in terms of discipleship that you're discipling? Um, you know, you've got a handful of guys. You've got, as, as Ralph says, you're three, you're 12, you're 120. You're focused on 12 to 20 people that you want to invest in disciple making. And what are you really trying to do? At any given time, you want to have the three that they're going to take your DNA for reproduction and what you're doing, and they're going to reproduce themselves. And then the hope is that it continues on. So I, I would say at the core, Myron, any answer to this question involves the method of this, where does disciple making fit as your growth engine? If, if, if anything other than biblical disciple making is your growth engine, and then orienting everything about the church around pouring gas on that disciple making engine, you're going to get in trouble because we're, we're that simplicity of, Think of it this way, that analogy to great, great, great grandkids, the more complicated the thing is that you've got to pass on to the great, great, great grandkids through three generations, the more complicated it is, 
the less likely it's going to happen. And the genius, the utter genius of what Jesus did with 3 and 12, how complicated is the core engine of multiplication, of growth and multiplication that Jesus came up with? In, in concept, it's, it couldn't be simpler. It, it's life-on-life life discipleship and disciple-making. So, uh, you know, how we orient the structures, the systems, the, the way the church functions, you know, it, the, the primary question of a new church ought to be, this thing we're thinking of doing or not doing, how does it enhance Jesus-style disciple-making? Like, how's it, how's it build the relational disciple-making piece? Yeah, you just said something, um, Todd, that um, I think we'd love for you to unpack a little bit because I see it. I see what you said in stark contrast to um, maybe the typical churches we may see. You said that we have to view discipleship as the growth engine. And part of for our audience, I would love for you maybe to unpack the importance, priority of discipleship being our growth engine versus our Sunday morning gatherings. Yeah, and I, I think the, the elephant in the room on this, Myron, is, and, and Ralph and I have had lots of conversations on this, is usually in life you can, you know, it, it's been said, follow the money. Look at any system and see the where's the money flow kind of thing, okay? And here's, here's the elephant in the room challenge on what you're asking. Um, if we just try to follow the money, all right, um, there's, there's sort of discretionary spending, there's non-discretionary spending, you know, the things we can choose to spend money on, the things we just have to spend money on. And here's what ends up happening. In, in the model of the U.S. church, the two biggest expenses are full-time staff and facilities and buildings. And as soon as you've got a model, and, and now look what those two things do, they're the engine of programmatic growth. How often, if, if you're a capital campaign company or a building company for churches, your sales pitch is, look at the growth curve of what happens to your church after you take on this debt and build this building. It'll pay for itself within X period of time by the growth that you get. In other words, the building, just physically getting the building and the program that can go with it is a growth catalyst. And then if, and if we're really candid, the business part of this with the Sunday morning thing is one full-time equivalent staff person can minister to about 100 people. And I'm going to totally put on a business hat right now. So if you're trying to grow the church and financially be a good steward, I'm totally putting on a business hat right now. You better figure out how every full-time equivalent staff person that can serve 100 people, they better end up through the programs that they're overseeing and the things they're doing, they better generate at least as much revenue in tithes and offerings as what the cost of their salary and the overhead that goes with them generates if that makes sense. So if you just took the average across everything, just thumb in the air, you know, use $100,000. Like 
you know, some people make less than that, some make more, but let's just say it was $100,000 of staff cost and overhead. So just imagine every time you're hiring a staff person, a children's minister, an admin person, a small groups person, the business side of the equation in the U.S. model, each of those people better generate $100,000 worth of revenue for the church. And here's the, here's the elephant in the room. Go back to the disciple-making engine of how financially sustainable is Jesus' model of 3 and 12? Like, you better figure out a bivocational model. If, if Jesus has to figure out how to pay the full-time salaries of the 12 disciples, uh-huh. how's that model work? You, you can't get there from here. So the, the very model that Jesus has given us has a little bit of a disconnect from the prevailing model, business model of the U.S. church that's programmatically driven. And, you know, how do, if you're building from the ground up a financial model to go with disciple making as the core engine, man, it, it took Jesus three years with 12. Again, I'm, I'm asking you, how do you overlay a financial model on something that's going to take you three years to develop 12 people? And that's Myron where the bivocational, I mean, the whole idea of where's the future of microchurch and bivocational, and I'm not trashing the big, I think the big church is here to stay, and growth is good. If we actually get growth through reproduction, we've got to simultaneously deal with the small and the big. Um, I want to introduce this thought, or did you want to say something, Rob? I had one more thought, but go ahead. Yeah, one thing that has always frustrated me is that when I'm working with the guys who are in the program, whether they're large churches or small, they always end up saying, yeah, disciple making, that's that's my staff guy. I, I'm too busy to do that myself. And now I'm watching COVID. And when, when COVID first hit, you know, we saw this explosion. Everybody's going to church online. Now there's all this shrinkage. And, and so I've been kind of getting under the hood, you know, who's growing, who's shrinking, what's going on. And what, and, and what I'm finding is where we used to put all the money into the colored lights and the building and all that, people are spending a lot of money trying to get their video production up. And then they, they're pre-recording and, you know, the, the, the whole thing, they're, you know, they're reading their sermons live. And, it's, you know, as soon as you put all your eggs in that Sunday morning pre-recorded basket, you're in direct competition with Andy Stanley. But what Andy Stanley can't do in your town is, is talk to your three people or your 12 disciples or get them on the phone or even do church in a Zoom call where people can have interaction and all of that. And so, again, we're, we're taking this programmatic uh, approach to everything we're doing, and, and we have this fantastic opportunity, I think, because of COVID, uh, to get a lot more people in the act, to need to get a lot more people in the act, and again, it comes back down to the to the math of where you you know follow the money. Where are you focusing your resources? And then I'm going to say follow the time. What where and why? Money? Where and why, Ralph? It's the where are you focusing it and why are you focusing it there? Yeah, go into that one a little bit. The where and why. Yeah, where is the easy one? You know, where you can. It's like looking at your checkbook. You can go through and say, where am I spending money? The way harder self reflection question is. Why am I spending my money on those things? And, and you know, a couple of years ago, Larry Wachemeyer, who's a pastor and part of our team at Exponential, Larry wrote a book called Flow. 
And in flow, he identified, you know, 20 plus tensions, what he called external tensions that impact our ability to reproduce and multiply with disciple making at the core. But more importantly, he identified 20 plus internal tensions for pastors. Things like self-comparison, pride, you know, unhealthy scorecards, that before we can actually deal with the external things, we've got to deal with the internal things. And so much of the definition of our internal scorecards of success, as, as especially for full-time pastors, we've got to look at what our motives are. Why are we doing the things we're doing? And where does it fit? In, because what if the single biggest obstacle to putting disciple-making engines in place as our growth engines? What if the single biggest obstacle is the scorecard of the, of the lead pastors? And that's why, it's, that's why it's important to answer the why question, not just the where question. Um, and, and just to make your point on discipleship, like, like what you just highlighted is exactly the, what, how are a lot of churches treating disciple-making as a compartmentalized program of the church. It, I, I think if the three of us were going to plant a church together right now, I know you guys well enough that if we were sitting in the living room with big white sheets on the wall to start designing what we're going to do, okay, we're, the, the very first thing that's going at the center of the page is, is disciple-making, and the question that's going to go with it is, how does this thing we're thinking about doing or spending time, talent, treasure on enhance or inhibit disciple-making Jesus' way? We're not even to the question of a Sunday morning thing, or are we meeting in houses, or are we? The, but our question is going to be: How does this help or hinder Jesus' style of biblical disciple making? Because we're going to want to make sure if the simple engine of reproduction is a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple, then the role of the church is not we can do it, you can help. The role of the church is you can do it. How do we help you be a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple? It shifts from how do we get people together on Sunday so we can preach to the masses to how do we equip the three to be making disciples of, of other people kind of thing. And, I, and, and the large group has its role in that. I'm not trashing the large group part of it. I'm saying it shifts from the large group part being the primary thing to it being a supporting thing. And right now, the reason you got to follow the money is it doesn't work. If you follow the money, there's no way that the Sunday thing in the model can be a secondary thing supporting the primary thing of disciple making because it's its own thing. It's got a, it, it, the amount of money that we put into the 80% Sunday morning thing, guess what? It's got to generate 80% of the revenue of the church. You, you, you know, so... I'm a I'm a I'm a former uh I'm a fuller I'm a former drug dealer and um I'm sitting here listening to you and to put it in drug dealer terms, you know, if I if I'm trying to to make more money, but I'm but I'm selling product that my client doesn't want, eventually I'm a I'm a bankrupt. What am I saying? I like we, we keep saying like, this is the way that Jesus way of doing things. 
and disciple making have to be at the center. But in my mind, the numbers don't add up. If we continue with the present day model of serving people, then we're going to have to continue making the money, which means we don't really focus on the heart of the master, which is disciple making. And so for me, I think there could possibly be people who are viewing us and they're saying they're feeling the tension. Like they're, they're feeling the tension of I'm in an, I'm in a mechanism that is manufacturing what we're getting. But I see over here, the birth of the new, the new Testament church began and multiply reproduce and multiply using disciple making like where, how, how, here's my question now. What do, what do we do with the tension? If we are in those present models, what do we do with that? How we navigate it? I, I yeah, and Ralph, you can jump. Oh yeah, let's let you jump in too. But I mean, the very first thing that my that I start thinking of is the the balancing act between what do we do with the old and and old in the positive sense of we don't want the old to just die, but what do we do with the existing models where there is a good strength financial base? There's lots of people engaged. And then what do we do with the new? What's the new wineskin and what balancing act are we doing? What role does the old or the existing have in birthing and being the, the, you know, the piloting platform for the new? That's why at Exponential, what we call the level four reproducing churches, the ones who have already embraced a scorecard where they, they want what we're talking about. We've got to come alongside the churches that, want to push into the future on what you're talking about, Myron. And I think we've got to be really investing in how to help those churches be Moses to Joshua. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but there's, there's a lot of existing churches that they just are going to have to embrace that they aren't going to fully get to see the promised land. They're going to see it from a distance, but the best way they might be able to see it is investing in their Joshua's. It's investing in the people that are going to do the new and getting to kind of live the legacy through the new. Um, To me, that's just what it's the reality. And, you know, it, it takes a lot less effort to birth and build a DNA into new things that are being started, especially if those new things are just ready to happen than it is to try to hold back and propel and, and, you know, either maintain the old or even try to change the old. We've used the words before in our conversations of, you always have to look at something and say, okay, is revolutionary change needed? Like in birthing a new country like this, you know, overthrowing the old and the new, or is evolutionary change needed? And and I know this is really hard, but, the oper- we're talking operating systems now. The, the operating system that produces a programmatic approach to growth is a different operating system than one that produces disciples who make disciples who make disciples. It's, di- it's like going from Android to iOS or iOS to Android. And I hate to say it, but that's revolutionary change. It's not ev- it, you're not in evolutionary change when you throw away your old phone and go to a whole new operating system with a new phone. That's revolutionary. And now the question is, 
is there a generation, I'm going to pick on Android, is there a generation of Android pastors who themselves can't stomach going to iOS, but they're willing to let all their children's staff who are going to go off and be involved in new churches, can they pour gas on and be supportive of all those new people going to iOS, going to the new operating system? And, and it's what Ralph has done amazing at, which is, yeah, I've had a great career in the operating system of the past. And let me tell you, if I were you, Myron, and I had your energy and your youth and what you have ahead of you, here's what I would be doing if I, you know, were the 30-year-old, 35-year-old me. And, and I think we're going to see a growing number of boomer pastors in that category where it's, they really do have some mentorship to share. And it's not just on basic leadership stuff. It's on the scorecard of success. It's on the operating system. It's the, hey, let me tell you, if I could do this all over again, I'd put the ladder against a different wall. I wouldn't be climbing the ladder on that wall over there. I'd put it on the wall over there and be climbing the ladder on a completely different wall. Yeah, you know, for me, uh, I'm looking at, again, I keep, I relate everything to COVID and the, this whole post-COVID. I, I'm so sick of hearing about the new normal. I think the new normal is going to be people have, uh, even, even if they stayed loyal and they watched your little Sunday morning deal that you do, uh, we've had to dumb it down. You know, you, you can't do a 30-minute worship thing with some guy singing a solo. It just ain't going to work. And so when you come back in the building and they got all the smoke and the colored lights and the banners and all that kind of stuff, are the people going to think, oh, wow, this is cool. We're back to wonderful. Or are they going to think this is a little bit superfluous? You know, I remember sitting in a room in Hawaii when we first got there. We, we, uh, we, we started meeting in, in disciple-making groups before we ever held a service on the beach on a Sunday. And we, then we, we harvested some guys that we thought could lead other people. And we set them together in a, in a house late on a Saturday night and go, what, so what are we going to do? Uh, tomorrow morning, we're starting on the beach. How, how do we do this to support what you guys are already doing? I think now is the time to, to start to ask those kinds of questions. Um, for me in my life, at my age, you know, I, I just left a church that looks a lot like the churches that I used to pastor. In fact, the guy who pastors it grew up in our church. And I'm in a Wesleyan church that is basically a microchurch that has spawned three other microchurches in a year, and one of them is in El Salvador. And, uh, you know, to me, the world has turned, and we're going to have to figure out what's going on. We need to pay, be looking at some of these movements, some of the movements we may not like uh, that, are, that are in the streets, that are uh, screaming for change. And, and look at how are they empowering people and what are they doing different than what we're doing because we're still controlling people. And to get off that, I'm, I'm, I'm in control, which forces me to run programs, to where you're in control, which forces me to maybe run a program, but it's there to support you and, and, and help you do what God's put in your heart. It looks like we've lost Myron, Todd. It's just you and me. <laughs> I don't know. Was he so upset with what we were talking about that he? Uh, Not at all. He'll be back. Out of here. He'll be back. <laughs> it's uh, here. We come. Here we come. Hey, Myron. Welcome back. Welcome. 
I'm back. I'm back. Good. Good, good. I think, Ralph, um, in terms of this looking beyond COVID at this point, like, I mean, just the question of the churn that happens, um, no, you know, nobody can – I don't think any of us can predict exactly what's going to happen. We can make assumptions about things, and that's about the best we're going to do. You know, the, the question – I think it's fair to ask is, you know, what, what we know to be true is that there's a whole lot of people who have been part of churches that feel like things are on hold right now, but they would still say I'm part of church A, B, or C. They've let their financial online giving continue to go there. And, you know, churches haven't been hit nearly as hard as some of the rest of the economy has been because of the online giving continuing on. Um, the question is, what happens when we start to emerge post-COVID, reliable vaccine, thing, what, whatever it means to get the sun, whatever it is for some new normal, are we actually going to see the people that have sort of been in holding pattern coming back or what percentage of them are going to be like, you know, this getting up in my pajamas and watching the Sunday morning thing, right. you know, and, and, and again, that is a that's a problem of the programmatic approach. The fact that somebody can be just as happy or happier getting up in their pajamas, getting their coffee, and watching Netflix TV for an hour at their convenience and feeling like they've gotten their shot of church for the week. Isn't that exactly the symptom of the programmatic church? And here's the problem. You know, the commitment level to that are we going to see a wave coming here, coming out of COVID, where we haven't actually seen the financial hit the churches yet? The financial hit happens when people actually feel like, oh, I could go back to church now, and I'm going to opt not to. That's when we see the financial hit coming. And again, if you follow the money in the programmatic approach, I think we could be seeing some pretty significant hits because the model's a programmatic model where you follow the money and there's not a reliable follow the money trail the way it's been in the post-COVID environment. Now, depending on what you're hoping for, that could be a really good accelerator to shifting us to some of the new models, but I think we're going to go through some pain before we, before we get there. The guys that are that are showing some significant growth right now are the guys that are, um, you know, either either focusing their program on the whole online experience. I know a guy that they started with seven thousand, they popped to sixty thousand, they're down to to twenty five thousand uh, in attendance, and they're but they're still kind of a program programmatic deal. It's mostly online, but they put eighty percent of their staff time is now focused to the online congregation and they're, they're a hybrid. They're going to, they're going, we're going to go back in the building, but that'll be a small part of what we do. The other thing that I'm seeing is the guys who are making admirance doing this serious contact with people on the ground and spending serious time discipling those people. And I think this whole idea of, of, of a hybrid, uh, we are going to be online churches with physical buildings, whether we like it or not. I, I read a lot of the financial press and uh, Simon Property Group, there's a group called Brookfield. They're buying up 
uh, shopping centers. They own shopping centers. They're buying up some of the stores that are going out of business, some of the chains that are going out of business, but they're going to run them this way. Instead of a lot of inventory where you come in, you go shopping, and the stuff's right there, and you take it home, there's a warehouse someplace, and all we have is samples. So you come in, you try on the sample, and you order it online right there, and it gets delivered from a warehouse. They've hybridized retail, and they think they can make money. We don't know yet if they will, but they think they can make money by hybridizing retail and, and doing something that they kind of wanted to do before COVID, and they're saying COVID became the tipping point to allow us to go in this direction. So we're going to need to look at some of the trends that were beginning to develop pre-COVID and go now, how can we, how can we ride this wave forward and, and take advantage of this thing? Uh, Myron, I think you should speak into this because you're doing this, you know, just Myron, for the sake of the audience, go over just a little bit of where you have started churches during COVID and what are you doing to make contact with those people on the ground that are actually pastoring the people that you're, you know, you're pastoring the pastors. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. So um, one of the questions even in the audience is, is there synergy between the multiplication model and the digital model? And, and I'd like to say that digital is a vehicle for multiplication. Um, and so I, I liken where we are in COVID um, as an Acts 8-1 season, an Acts 8-1 chapter, where us as the church, we've had to disband from physical locations and really be used as what I call digital disciples. And so cool thing about that is that there may be some who may wake up one day out of COVID and say, Hey, I don't, I don't really want to do that anymore. That what they're discovering is that God was opening up, up a door for them to be a digital disciple. And so when we, as a director, when I saw the potential of ministering to people as a, as a area disciple, and we started going into um, places all over the world, digitally ministering to people as missionaries, and helping them take steps in, in creating disciple-making relationships. Kansas City, Accra, um, um, South Carolina, Rock Hill, South Carolina, um, you know, just to name a few. And so I would say on the back of what Todd is, is getting at is begin with the question of um, how does the growth, how does this growth engine called disciple-making, um, you know, um, how can we leverage the digital real estate um, and communities that are that are available. Here's reality. In marketing, you say something like this. If you want to gather an audience, you'll always have to add value first. And the thing about disciple making, it, it is the most valuable, rewarding, messy investment uh, that you can make in somebody, make into the life of someone, and yet um, the most simple opportunities that that await. And so I, I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm I have a, a disciple in um, South Hill, uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina, and um, they they launched um, Mission Church Rock Hill, and now they are missionaries by reaching the next generation 
and um, both digitally. There's a dude, I forget, Church Digital. He's calling it digital now, physical and digital. But yeah, uh, stuff is all to say, you know, the, num- the, the, the name of the game is how are we going to leverage disciple making as a growth engine, whether I'm physical or digital? You have to wrestle with that. And like you always say, Ralph, we don't have to upset the cart. We can just go get a new cart, right? Let the, let the existing iOS system be, let it be. But then over here, you know, like off to the side where we're not interrupting or intimidating or threatening the, the average thing that's over here. How can we go over here and just begin experimenting with making disciples? That's going to be the best way forward. I, I think you're right on, Myron. And I, you, you've used the word missionary several times. I mean, if I take the words you've used, church plant, disciple makers, missionaries. I, I think the filter that helps me think about the future with digital is this. Um, I, I firmly believe in trying to lead exponential right now that one of the most important questions over the next couple of years is actually going to be the ecclesiology of what church is because in some ways digital in and I'm going to talk the positives of it here, but digital brings in a blurring of the lines between what a missionary does and a church planter does and, and the different things. And, and here's what I mean by that. Um, all church planters, 100% of church planters should be missionaries to their communities. 100% of Christ followers part of a local faith community should be missionaries to their unique mission fields around where they are. So if, if I can kind of, this is a filter I use. If I think about the idea of everyone, a missionary, and then I look at the digital space through that lens is the digital space, an unbelievable mission field for missionaries to engage. Holy cow. It's one of the coolest things ever with, 5G coming and virtual reality and the gaming community. And I mean, man, you want to talk about, again, I hate to say if it was the business sector, I want to invest in that stock, like the the mission field part of the opportunity of digital for the future. Where it gets a little bit blurred, though, is where 100% of church planters ought to be missionaries, should 100% of missionaries be church planters. And the answer is absolutely not, I don't think, because that could be a path of destruction where, you, where anybody can be a missionary and an ambassador for Jesus. Not everybody really has that. And now I'm going to bring it back to the minimum ecclesiology, whatever your minimum ecclesiology is. I'm not imposing what it is, but there's some dimension of spiritual authority. There's a dimension of organization and structure. There's, and let me use this. I know we're running out of time, but I want to go back to where we started, Ralph's 3, 12, and 120. Think about this. Um, Bob Buford, who was a mentor to me, a guy named Lyle Schaller, who was one of the great consultants ever, Lyle said to Bob Buford when Leadership Network was just a couple of employees, Lyle said to Bob, you've got to decide do you want Leadership Network to be a cause-based, mission-based organization forever, or do you want it to become an enterprise? 
And what he, what he went on to tell Bob is as soon as you get somewhere close to four full-time equivalent staff, he actually said three and a half, you start shifting from being cause and mission based to, in my words now, enterprise based. Okay. And if, if we look at the difference between a cause based entity, a shop based or small business based entity, or an enterprise, now go back to your three, 12, 120. Three don't have to worry about organizational dynamics. They can completely be focused on the mission at hand. And if you're always just working on three for disciple making, you don't have all that baggage of having to figure out staff and where's the facility and how are we gonna do this and how are we gonna do that. But as soon as you're successful at the mission with three, all of a sudden you've got the 12 and you got to deal with the dynamics of the small business or the shop or whatever you want to call it. Now it starts to introduce an organizational dynamic. Now, guess what? When you're successful with the 12 and they reproduce and you grow, you get the 120 and you're now into an enterprise dynamic. Enterprise dynamic is the scalability, the infrastructure, all the stuff. And so when I say, would we like to see 100% of missionaries be church planners? Yes. But now if we say, do 100% of missionaries have the ability to lead enterprises? We better be really careful because they could lead a, leave a path of destruction in trying to do that. So... I, I think that brings, for me, brings me back to that ecclesiology question of, okay, it's going to become increasingly important to totally pour gas on and affirm really cool missionary mission field things. And there's yet to be a digital thing that isn't the coolest missionary thing to me. Like, it's easy to get excited about all the different digital things happening when I put on the hat of a missionary. It starts to get more fuzzy. Yeah. When you say, now, where do you bring the church plant or the church part of that in? And I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying that's way more messy. Yeah. So. That's good. Well, hey, we're, we're about out of time. Um, Todd, man, it was a pleasure to, to hear from you. Um, for those of you who are, who are still on, we want to invite you to our exponential roundtables this year. It's going to be amazing right now. You check the screen, so many leaders in so many cities. We're exploring, exploring you know, the idea of what justice looks like um, as leaders all across America. And just shout out to, to Todd and the team uh, for taking time to, to allow people like Brian Loritz and, and I mean, all kind of people like Albert Tate. I mean, leaders from across the nation having conversations around race. Go to multiplication.org slash uh, roundtables and uh, register. Register your team. We have some cool rates and cool discounts. Uh, it's coming up real soon. You don't want to miss it. I think it's cutting edge, and I think it's going to uh, really impact our spheres of influence. And guys like Myron Pierce, look at that top row far right. <laughs> well, Todd, man, thank you so much, man. Um, it's been a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to, to more conversations like this. Thank you, guys. It's fun. 
This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.